Well, today we're going to deviate from our study of the book of Genesis, and I think it's appropriate for us to focus and talk about how we can steward our votes in a God-honoring way as we face the election nine days from now. And so I hope you take out your outline. Uh, there's a lot of words on that outline, but I want you to go home with some principles to pray about, to think about, as we prepare to vote here on November the 3rd. Thank you, Chuck. And um, as we think about that, it's very important that we look at things from a biblical perspective. We can get jaded in our view of things because we get all wrapped up in our particular partisan ways or a party, but what does God say about these things when we, and the principles he has and commands about how we should vote? And why this is near and dear to my heart is that in 2016, right after the election that we had that elected President Trump, um, our sister church had two families, young couples, leave the church because they felt like that church supported one candidate over another, even though it was never said from the pulpit or anywhere else, but because of the values of the church, they felt they could no longer worship there. And that's a sad, sad statement because um, we should be able as believers to agree to disagree on uh, some of the things. So take out your Bible if you would. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. If you're watching at home, you can look on the app for the outline if you would like, or hopefully you've uh, printed it that Carrie sent out to you on Friday. But we want you to follow along as we read these scriptures, Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22, and we've heard these verses many times. But then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. And may God add the power of his blessing to the reading of his word, as it tells us in Revelation 1, it's a blessed thing to read God's word. Well, think of the power of one vote. The power of one vote. There's some that would say, I'm not going to vote in this election. I'm going to sit this one out. But think about how it's affected down through the years different elections. Thomas Jefferson was elected president by one vote in the House of Representatives after a tie in the Electoral College. In 1824, Andrew Jackson won the presidential popular vote, but lost by one vote in the House of Representatives to John Quincy Adams after an electoral college deadlock. In 1845, the U.S. Senate passed the convention annexing, annexing Texas, making it a state by merely two votes. President Andrew Johnson was impeached, but not convicted because the Senate was one vote shy of the needed two-thirds vote to remove him from office. In 1876, Samuel Tilden won the presidential popular vote, but came up one electoral vote shy 
and lost to Rutherford B. Hayes. And in our recent time, in 2017, in the Virginia House of Delegate Race, District 94, this is amazing, after a close result in the elections, they did a recount, and they found out that they both tied. They had the equal amount of votes. And according to the Virginia State Constitution, they had to put their two names into a bowl and pull one out to decide who would represent or win that election. And what even more important about it was, it was 50-50, whoever would win would decide the majority, 51 to 49, in the House of Representatives in the state of Virginia. The power of one vote, it was left up to pulling a name out of a bowl. Well, how will you use your vote this November 3rd? Or maybe you've already voted, like my wife and I, Diane, did yesterday. But this might be a reminder, or you may have these principles or hear them for the very first time. Let's look at, first of all, God's perspective on dual citizenship. God's perspective on dual citizenship. First and foremost, our allegiance is to our ultimate home, which is heaven. And that's where we begin. We are citizens here in the United States. We are living here in this time. God has placed us here at this specific time in history for a purpose. But he also reminds us that everything God is about supersedes that of politics and political parties. So our allegiance is to our ultimate home, which is in heaven. In Philippians 3.20, Paul said, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're constantly to be reminded that we're just passing through, that this is just a temporary place. Now, I say that, and sometimes we can be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. We need to understand that we do have responsibilities here, that God in 1 Timothy and other places tell us to enjoy his creation, that he, he brought it here for our pleasure, and we can enjoy the things of this world. He said in John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly, not only in heaven, but also here on earth. But the other side of that is that we can become too earthly-minded to be heavenly good. And that's the tension that we live in. We have to understand the balance of our dual citizenship. And ultimately, ultimately, our allegiance is to God the Father. We just need to be careful that we don't get caught up at times with the issues of this world. And according to Colossians 3.2, that we are already seated in the heavenly realm as far as God is concerned. He sees us there already. But we're to be godly examples of citizens here in this, on this earth in this life. So we need to expect as we stand for God and his word, some will not like it. And remember what Jesus said, that when they rebuke you for living out the Christian faith, they're not really upset with you, they're upset with Jesus Christ. And it helps us to understand that. So if the election doesn't go your way, just know God is sovereign. We have to accept the results and know that the Bible says that he raises up the leaders and the authorities who are over us they're ultimately are appointed by God, but certainly we have a part in that process. Second of all, God is not for any one political party. God is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Libertarian. He's not for the Green Party. God is bigger and sovereign over all these things. In 2004, you remember George W. Bush was run against John Kerry, and some students on the campus of the University of North Carolina decided to have a lively debate about the two candidates. 
And the question came up, who would Jesus vote for, George W. Bush or John Kerry? Well, the two people got so heated that one guy slapped the other guy in the face and knocked him down. Isn't that exactly what Jesus would want to have happen as you debate whether who he would vote for? Only in America that could happen. But we have to be careful not to attack different viewpoints that a person may take. That would be detrimental to the unity of the body of Christ if they're believers, but also a bad witness to those that are non-believers. We do not believe in unity at any cost, but we are to do our best to get along and live in harmony with one another. God is for everyone. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Jesus in our scripture reading supported the current leadership. He supported Caesar, but he was oppressing the Jews. And I'm sure that didn't make Jesus happy, but he still paid his taxes, but he still probably prayed for him. And Paul, Paul also was involved in that as well, as he tried to use his imprisonment as a way to lead political leaders to faith in Christ while under trial and tribulation. So why did God allow someone like Stalin or Hitler or Hirohito or Mussolini become leaders of nations and murder so many of their people? We have to trust in God's sovereign plan for people and nations. He works in ways that sometimes are a mystery to us and especially hard for us to figure out while in this world. But we trust in God's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul said, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Remember that. We do not always understand his ways, but his ways are always perfect. Thirdly, America is not a covenant nation like biblical Israel. America is not a covenant nation like biblical Israel. We're not an extension or replacement of Israel as Americans. Israel, as we see in Genesis 12 and 15, Abram changed his name to Abraham, would be a father of a great nation. He would be promised a land in Canaan that would be for his people. And uh, we know that that's a promise just for them, as we've been studying in the book of Genesis. But our nation was founded on godly principles based on Judeo-Christian ethic. And the reason that we've been blessed is Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Our country's enjoyed God's special hand of blessing like no other nation in history with so many wonderful rights and privileges. Now there's a debate by many historians and scholars as to the spirituality of our founding fathers. You'll read from some people that they were deists. Deists are pe people that believe that God created the world and took his hands off it and lets it run its course and man can do as he pleases. Or Christian God, where Yahweh, he's intertwined and involved in the history and the workings of man in his world. There's lots of great articles about that, where the deists speaking uh, Christian language in public but believing the deist philosophy while by themselves in a quiet place, we don't know. Or were they really godly Christians? Thomas Jefferson, who penned the Declaration of Independence, he edited a version of the Bible where he took out all the miracles in the New Testament. When I was a young boy, we went to Monticello in Virginia. And we 
saw that Bible firsthand in a case where he had taken out all the miracles in the New Testament. But on the other hand, listen to this story by David Barton, the man who heads up wall builders who does great history on the beginnings of our country. In 1800, November of 1800, the Capitol was completed, and the Senate and the House of Representatives moved in. And one of the first acts of Congress was December 4th, 1800, they decided to establish the Capitol as a church building, as a place that they would worship on Sunday morning, and they would meet in the uh, chamber of the House of Representatives, and they have worship. And Thomas Jefferson was then the president of the Senate, and he approved it along with the House of, Speaker of the House, John Trumbull. Thomas Jefferson approved church in the Capitol. Yeah, and it says he went there as vice president. He went to church there for eight years as president. And he established it in the records and seen in the diaries of people that they worshiped there. And then Thomas Jefferson did something even more controversial. He made the Marine Corps band come and be the worship band for their church services there in the chamber of the House of Representatives. That's a pretty good worship band, I would think. And so if you need, you know, if you try to understand his letter of church separation, separation of church and state, if you read it very carefully, he makes it very clear separation of church and state will keep the government from stopping a public religious activity. And he wrote that to the Danforth Baptists. Not, it's not something that's included in the Bill of Rights or our amendments or our Constitution. So as the Pledge of Allegiance says, one nation under God, and as our dollar bills say, in God we trust, God will continue to bless our nation as we follow his commands and his morality. But we are owed God's judgment upon us for being willing to kill over 60 million babies through abortion. We're owed that. We're also owed that because we've legalized same-sex marriage in violation to his design for sexuality, gender, and marriage. And if God doesn't judge us, according to one famous preacher, he will owe an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah for the severe judgment that they received. Number four, only the gospel has the power to transform people who together transform a nation. The transformation of our country will not come through legislation. It won't come through the Supreme Court decisions. It's going to come through the gospel, the gospel. Remember Romans 1.16, for it's the power of the gospel that brings us to Christ, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. We see the power of true cultural renewal lies in the word of God, not the halls of kings. As I've said many times, revival will not begin on Air Force One. It begins in the hearts of believers first and then in churches, and then it'll spill out into society and communities around it. It begins with us. In Titus 3.5, it says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here's another point to fill in the blanks. The church is to create godly men and women who will become responsible citizens of their government. Create. Responsible. Many pastors at the beginning of this nation, if you read Jonathan Edwards and others, they believed that the church's role was to create godly, responsible citizens. Then out of that godly, responsible citizens that were made, the citizenry, there would be those that would raise up and be leaders. And they would go to Washington or they would go to their 
capital in their state. And they would only go for a short period of time and return back to their families and their livelihoods. Grammar schools used the Bible as a primer to learn to read. Prayer and scriptures were used in our school daily. Sadly, we've moved away from these things. Prayer and Bible reading were outlawed in our schools in 1962 and 1963, respectively, by the Supreme Court justices at that time. And then abortion followed to be legalized in 1973. The move has been to keep religion out of the marketplace and schools and reserved for our homes and churches only. And we're seeing that right on our TVs with our young people revolting against the government and calling for anarchy of our current government system. You know, as I was reading this week in 2013, you remember in the First Amendment it says that we have the freedom of religion, the freedom to be able to go out and uh, publicly worship God in the way that we want to, not just in home or church, but in public. In 2013, President Barack Obama and shortly thereafter Hillary Clinton began to use the term freedom of worship, which means that freedom of worship, you can worship in your home and in your church, but not out in the marketplace. And how subtly these words change meaning or how they shift it so that you don't even understand what's going on. And Abraham Lincoln said this, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Well, we teach our kids in school, these become the leaders in future generations. Sad to say, characters not on the ballot in this election. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But number five, number five, both the church and the government are institutions created by God. The blank there is institutions. The church and government are institutions created by God. One of the other institutions that God made of the three is that he established marriage. We see that in Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2 as we studied. We get to Genesis 9 where we talked about the Tower of Babel. And many biblical scholars think that's the beginning of the institution of government. Then we get to the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and we see the Holy Spirit coming down, the disciples going out and preaching in the, in the streets, sharing the gospel and languages of the, known, the people of the time, and that's when the church began. So we see these institutions, but the government is an institution created by God. The bullet point there is the church is to be an ambassador of a heavenly kingdom and not the voice of the world. We're not to stick our finger in the air and figure out what the majority of the polls say to decide what's truth. We have absolute truth from the word of God that we stand on. The church is losing, if not have lost its voice in society because so many churches and their leaders have decided to move to relevancy and follow what the majority of the people believe and embrace instead of being the lighthouse, warning of the dangers in the night. And this is so important that the church is designed to work alongside the government to be a moral compass, a voice of morality, to call the government and its leaders back to God, to consider who God is and their decisions, whether it be in the legislative or the judicial branch of the government. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, the church must be reminded it's not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state 
It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. So it's important that we stand on the truths of God's word and when it intersects with government, then we have to speak to those things. Here's an example of what's happening in the Catholic Church. In a Wall Street Journal headline not too long ago, Pope Francis backed civil unions for gay couples and shift for Vatican. The writer of the article said Pope Francis endorsed civil unions for same-sex couples in a move that's likely to intensify already heated controversy over the Catholic Church's teaching on homosexuality. And here's the Pope in his own words. Homosexuals have a right to be a part of the family. They're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or made miserable because of it. He said, what we have is to create a civil union law. That way they're legally covered, he says. I stood up for that. That's the view of the Pope, our current Pope in the world today. The next bullet point you see, the king has been uniquely called by God to administer justice with the aid of the timeless counsel of God's word. If you read Romans 13, 1-7, you'll see the primary purpose of the government is to punish evil and elevate good in society, to bring security for the people that are under its authority. And they are to do that from God's perspective. They're to be servant leaders. We see that also in 1 Peter 2. We see that in 1 Peter and 1 Timothy 2 as well, to protect and help the people to be safe from evil. Our justice system is based on John Locke's philosophy. He lived over in England, and he built his philosophy of law off of the Ten Commandments. Number six, a Christian's identity is not in a political party, but who we are in Christ, which is found in God's word. This is so important. I'm just as guilty of many people in this room. I like to see the banter back and forth between the two sides that are you know, out there for the election or candidates or to see those things. And we can get so wrapped up in that that we start to forget about our identity in Christ and that God is sovereign and above all of this. In Joshua chapter 5, a little humorous story here that uh, the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, comes to, to Joshua. It says in Joshua 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the, the commander of the army said this, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua said, hey, are you for us or against us? Are you on our side or on the enemy's side? Let me know. He says, neither, neither. I am the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. And he wanted to speak about what was much more important. Our God is sovereign. He supersedes any political party. Our focus is on the spiritual kingdom of God in this world and the world to come. Another bullet point, the Christian is called to pray and support the welfare of its city. I wish we had time to go into that. We're called to support the welfare of the city. When Jeremiah wrote this verse in Jeremiah 29, 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. They were taken away to captivity. 
they were going to be in another place. They wouldn't be able to practice their religion and their feasts and all these things the way they had in the past. And so they were in despair, and God says, hey, you need to live out your faith the best way you can, but also support, support the city that you're in and volunteer and be involved as you can because as you prepare and help the welfare of the city, it will prepare and take care of the welfare of yourself. We're, it's a, we're to be involved in our communities, even in our government if possible. And then the Christian is called to be salt and light in its culture. We're called in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to come out and be separate. Jesus said we're to be in the world but not of the world. We're to be an ever-brightening light as we become more like Christ to contrast the darkness and draw men to the light. So in the summertime, if you go outside, it's pretty obvious, you turn on the light. And what happens? You get moths and gnats and all kinds of bugs, and they like to gravitate to that light. Well, guess what? We are to be that light. And hopefully that light of Christ within us will cause people to want to be curious about the faith that's within us. It says we're to be salt. Notice some characteristics of salt. We've said this numerous times. It's a preservative. And you and I as believers, we're to preserve the good and push back the evil by being salt in this world. Where, you know, salt makes you thirsty if you drink it in um, water. If you go to the ocean and you get a mouthful of salt water, you know how thirsty it makes you. By us living out our faith, it should make people curious or thirsty about the faith that lives within our hearts. Salt is used to melt snow in the wintertime. The gospel melts the hearts of men and women if we're living out the gospel in our lives. Salt also provides flavor. We put it on our food, right? To add some flavor to it. And so we, as Christians, we add flavor to this world. We add variety by living out our lives for Christ and by sharing with people about the gospel. So our application is this. We must understand and live in the tension of our dual citizenship of heaven and earth. We must understand and live in the tension of our dual citizenship of heaven and earth. I hope you get a solid sense of what it means to be a citizen of two countries and how to balance the responsibilities of both. But now we're going to look at God's principles of discernment for voting. We needed that point for the background, the foundation, the platform to look at these very important points. These things are my opinion. So, you know, you can always talk to me about these things, but I think many of these things are based in God's word. First of all, we have to understand that we are not voting for spiritual leaders to represent and lead our country. As I said last week, when you're voting for President of the United States or someone to go into the Senate or the House of Representatives or City Council, we're not voting for pastors and Sunday school teachers. Now, I say that, but then on the other hand, we want to raise up godly people to be involved in politics, and there are some. You see the ads for Esther Joy King. She grew up in a missionary home. Um, she talks about being a servant leader running in for, against someone in Illinois. So we see Christians getting involved, and that's why it's important that we teach our kids at home godly principles. Some places, you know, we have Christian schools that people attend, Christian universities, Christians in public schools as teachers and students, and all those things are important. 
The church is important, as we said, to build uh, the citizenry so they have godly principles. But in the end, in the absence of election that doesn't present godly leaders and follow biblical principles, we still have to make a choice. So the first bullet point there is the importance of character and the spirituality of candidates. Character is so important, but has been devalued greatly in the last several decades in our elected officials. Remember the day that someone who was divorced could not even be elected to an office? And in 1980, Ronald Reagan, who was divorced, was elected as president. Donald Trump has been divorced twice. One senator currently is running against someone. He's been found to be sexting a PR person in another state who is helping with his campaign. Illicit photos and racy conversations have emerged. He's still in the race, and it's a good chance he may win that race. So we won't go down that road of how character and campaigns and elected officials went off the rails and character doesn't matter anymore. In our current state of election, we have to choose between two very flawed individuals. So this may lead some Christians to decide not to vote at all. And I would disagree with that, but it is your privilege and your opportunity to do that. It's not wrong to steward your vote to someone who has character or maybe choose someone in a lesser party who does have um, character qualities that would line up with the word of God or not vote at all. That is your right and your privilege. Then we see the importance of looking at what they do and not what they say. This is so important. Beyond character and their spiritual life, which should be examined and strongly considered in our discernment who to vote for, it's best to look at their record, to look at what they say. I'm not here to tell you how to vote, but I will say it's been refreshing to see a president who uh, accomplishes the things that he says he will do and carry them out. On the other hand, you look at the record of candidates and if you're liberal and progressive, you will like Vice President, um, the candidate for Vice President Kamala Harris. She's been rated the most liberal voting senator of all the 100 senators. And so you see a distinction. You see a choice that you can make. Our president is probably the most pro-life president in what he says and what he's accomplished. Look at what people do and not do, but look at what they say. I'm sorry, don't look at what they say, look at what they do. I wrote that wrong. Look at what people do. Don't look at just what they say, because that can be misleading. And then the importance of doing your own homework. You saw in the program today, a voter's guide. And in the voter's guide there, you get some where the candidates stand on certain issues. There's lots of ways to do research, but don't rely on the media. Don't rely on just the commercials. And if you get the opportunity, go hear that, the candidates in person. Research online how they vote for issues that are passionate, that they're passionate about. Don't take the media or someone else's word for that candidate, but find the truth out for yourself. Dig it out. 95% of the news articles you see on the internet have been proven they have an agenda one way or the other. And so you need to be discerning about the information that you're reading. Number two, we must discern the candidate's views in comparison to non-negotiable biblical values. Uh, Mike Fenley, he's out in California, sent the elders a short video of a Catholic priest in Towson, Maryland. And a week or two ago in his homily, he pointed out that Pope Benedict 
had said there's three non-negotiables to think about and consider in that time for leaders, but now as we have the opportunity to vote, these should be things as Christians that would be non-negotiables that we look for in candidates. You see them there on your outline. Number one is sanctity of life. Sanctity of life. Think about all that involves. That, how do you view embryonic stem cell research? Aborted parts used for sale. Think about infanticide. Peter Singer became the bioethics professor at Princeton, once an evangelical school. In 1999, he became the, the, the chairperson of bioethics. And according to him, in his book, he says, it doesn't seem wise to add to the burden on limited resources by increasing the number of severely disabled children. He believes that after birth, parents have time to decide whether they want to keep the child or allow it to be killed. He talked about it in his practical ethics. He believes there should be a law making it a right together with their physicians and parents to decide whether the infant's life will be so miserable or devoid of minimal satisfaction that it would be inhumane or futile to prolong life. Here's what he says that's very interesting. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping, grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons, but animals are self-aware at birth. And therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. That's Peter Singer, one of the teachers at Princeton University, the sanctity of life. God is going to demand an answer from us as Americans as to why we allowed over 60 million babies to be killed on our watch. We'll have to answer as Christians for why we did not do all that we could to stand up for these voiceless and innocent children. This is a non-negotiable for a candidate. Another non-negotiable is God's design for marriage. In 2015, the Supreme Court decided to legalize same-sex marriage. It's the law of the land, as you know. And as churches and as Christians, we responded poorly to this issue of homosexuality, which is now also the LBGTQ plus community an issue. We didn't have a good answer biblically with compassion and love and now we are marginalized on this issue. But nonetheless, we're responsible to give the clarion call of what God says is the design for gender, for sexuality, for marriage and family based on his word. And we do that in a positive way, sharing God's blessing on the design that he gave to us. And we enthusiastically not only teach it, we put it on display by how we live out our marriages and our family lives. God's design for marriage is the best picture to a watching world of what salvation is all about. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives are to respect their husbands. But verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. As we live in that bond of matrimony, as we raise our kids to be godly citizens, we show before a watching world the gospel at work each and every day. And the third non-negotiable is the preservation of religious liberty. So important because we have to have the ability to continue to communicate without any limits or boundaries what we believe about God's word. 
It allows the Muslims to preach what they believe. It allows the Sikhs to preach what they believe, the Jewish people. That's why the pilgrims came here in search of religious freedom and liberty. Sam Lucero from the Compass said this, democracy must be based on the true and solid foundation of non-negotiable ethical principles, which are the underpinning of life in society. In the face of fundamental and inalienable ethical demands, Christians must recognize that what is at stake is the essence of the moral law, which concerns the integral good of the human person. The note stated, this is the case with laws concerning abortion and euthanasia, not to be confused with the decision to forego extraordinary treatments, which is morally legitimate. Such laws must defend the basic right to life from conception to natural death, based on voting on non-negotiable issues. Thirdly, we must discern biblically the secondary issues. It would be good to get this book out there. In questions six and seven, or seven questions, he talks about this particular point in detail. We're going to face issues in any election that the Bible does not speak directly to, but we can search the Word of God for principles. For example, the Bible has at least 95 different references pertaining to foreigners and immigrants and how the Jewish nation, how they were supposed to treat them with dignity and respect. And I think all of us would agree with that. But then when it comes down to how we go about doing it, that's where the differences come in. We would differ on what that looks like, what to do with those who are here illegally, those who are here legally. Should we, building a, should we be building a wall at the border? Should we have open borders? This is where we need to look at God's word and study to see what principles apply so we can come to a personal conviction on how to vote. Some of these secondary issues would be the economy. The economy would be on taxation. As I mentioned, immigration. Healthcare is a secondary issue. Military, how to deal with the military, climate change, prison and the legal system, and a plethora of other issues that as Christians, we have to come up with convictions or preferences as to what we believe. But don't forget the three non-negotiables the sanctity of life, God's design for marriage and sexuality and gender, and the preservation of religious freedom. So the secondary issues should be looked at. And that leads us how to discuss them with others and develop unity with others who see things differently than we do, especially with Christians. Number four, we do not espouse to peace at any cost with fellow Christ followers, but be open to healthy debate where people can amiably agree to disagree. The two blanks are the cost and debate. We do not espouse to the fact that you don't have healthy debate, debate and conflict. Those things are, are good in many ways if they're handled properly. There's a lot that can be learned from those things. But we have to, at the end of the day, be able to agree to disagree on these secondary issues. Romans 12 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. The biggest problem we get into with debating other people is our pride and our ego get in the way. We want to be right. We want to prove that we're right. 
but we need to approach those conversations in humility. Number five, we should use our given privilege of voting, our last point. We should use our given privilege of voting. In the days of the Bible, no one knew what a democracy was. People didn't vote for those to lead or rule over them. Some evangelicals try to make the case that you don't have to vote. I believe God has placed us as Christians and people in this country for a time to make our opinions and voice known in the ballot box because we've been given that right and that privilege. In the U.S., 257 million people are 18 or older, and 240 million of those are eligible to vote. Sad to say, it's estimated that by the way early voting is going this year, 150 million people could vote in this election, and that's 62% of eligible voters, and that's a pretty high compared to other elections. But sad to say, that percentage is just too low of the people that could vote. That's 38% of people that could vote that do not. If you look up on the screen, you'll see a picture of these three ladies. In January of 2005, the Iraqi nation, for the very first time, had the freedom to vote in an election. Look at the joy on their faces and see the purple mark on their fingers showing, just like we have a sticker, I have voted. That was their way of saying that I have voted. While scriptures do not command us to vote, I believe we have to be wise stewards of the privilege. We have to vote and exercise our rights provided in our freedom to do that in this election. Our country is facing two opposing worldviews, very distinct differences. Neither line up perfectly with all that evangelical Christians believe in the realm of the non-negotiables. But as Christians, we need to prayerfully do our homework and go and exercise our freedom and right to vote for the president and all those down the ballot, down to the local county supervisors and justices and city council and all those things. After all, God placed us here for such a time as this to make a difference. So here's the application. We are to vote for the candidate who we discern is closest to the values found in God's word. It's up to us to do our homework, to pray, to make our decision and go and vote. We are to discern who's closest to the values in God's word. The key thought here is this, and it goes back to the illustration at the beginning of the sermon. Never forget the value of your vote, the difference of what one vote can make. I gave you several examples of that. I want to read this quote, and then we'll be finished. It's at the bottom of your notes. I hope you'll read it now, but I hope you'll reread it throughout this week. This is from Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He said, a nation always gets the kind of politicians it deserves. If a time ever comes when the religious Jews, Protestants, and Catholics ever have to suffer under a totalitarian state, which would deny to them the right to worship God according to the light of their conscience, it will be because for years they thought it made no difference what kind of people represented them in Congress and because they abandoned the spiritual in the realm of the temporal. They abandoned the spiritual in the realm of the temporal. God has given us this opportunity using his principles in God's word to be a part, to be a light in this world around us. Let's bow for prayer. Father, this is a solemn occasion as we approach November 3rd. I pray none of us will take it lightly. I know some, if not many, have already voted. 
And we pray for those who will, have yet to vote and who will vote in the next few days. And we just pray, Lord, for your leadership, your wisdom, your guidance. Help us as Christians to be wise stewards of the vote that you've given it to us. And it is, it's given to us. It's a privilege. They say in our constitution it's a right. But all those things come from you, Lord. And so we pray that we would be wise in how we do that. We can make a difference in this world to hold back the darkness and to point to the light and help us as a church to raise up young people and adults who will not only be good, godly, responsible citizens, but may in time be involved in the electoral process at different levels, that they could be the light of Christ in our government, in our city councils and school boards and other places here in our community. Just continue to lead us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.